All right, church, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And before we read that text together, we are going to call on the name of the Lord and ask for help. And so let's do that now. Father, we come again this morning in Jesus' name, Lord, and we thank you for the gospel. God, we thank you for access to the holy of holies, Lord, through the new and living way, through the curtain that is the flesh of Christ. And Lord, we desire to draw near to you. And we ask for your help this morning, for your grace and for your strength. God, be our shepherd as we gather around your word and strengthen us and nourish us. Lord, you're faithful. Week in and week out, God, you meet us here. And we pray, God, that you would build us up as we give attention to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read our text together this morning. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. Now, if you're taking notes, I'll give you a quick outline of uh, where we're headed in this passage. In verses 1 and 2, you see the counsel of the wicked. In verses 3 through 5, you see the repentance of the wicked. In verses 6 through 8, you see the hypocrisy of the wicked. And then in verses 9 and 10, you see the sovereignty of God. So if you're taking notes this morning, you can just note 
that simple outline. Now we'll begin in verse 1. Verse 1, Matthew picks up on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. This is the last sunrise Jesus sees before he is crucified. The very last day of his earthly life before his crucifixion and eventually his resurrection. Matthew tells us that on this particular morning, Jesus is gathered in the midst of, verse 1, the chief priest, all the chief priests, and all the elders of the people. And that's language in our text this morning. Matthew is referring to the Jewish Sanhedrin. Okay? This is a formal gathering of the leaders of Israel. The Sanhedrin was a formal body of Jewish leaders, 70 men plus one, the high priest, and this was the, the quasi-rulers in Israel while Israel was under Roman occupation. Okay? This was the highest Jewish court in Jesus' day, and they gathered together in an emergency session. Ron taught us this last week uh, that this was a sham trial. Okay? They, they met in the middle of the night, and this is dragged out to the early morning hours. They met in the middle of the night and early in the morning to push things through and to, to get this over quickly and quietly, to do their business in a corner, okay, instead of out in public. Matthew tells us in verse 1, that these leaders, these Jewish leaders, took counsel against Jesus. Okay? Now, this was not an honest inquiry into the facts of what are the facts of the case, what are the facts of what this man has done. This was the outcome was predetermined before the trial even gathered together. And you see this in the word that Matthew uses. The Greek word here is symbolion. And this is the same word that's translated in other places in Matthew's gospel as conspiring or plotting. That's what they're doing. Okay? This is not uh, honest counsel. This is conspiring and plotting against Jesus. You see this in Matthew 12, verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. You see it again in Matthew 22, verse 15. The Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And so they are plotting against Jesus in this early morning meeting. And Matthew tells us that the penalty that they're seeking is the death penalty in verse 1. It wasn't enough for Jesus to be scourged or uh, financially fined or uh, some other penalty. That, that wasn't enough. They sought to put him to death. That was, they had received authority as the highest court in the land to establish justice. And part of that would be the death sentence. It's their highest use of their authority. And they're wanting to use as much authority as they have been given to enforce the death penalty. And so they're plotting. The predicament that the Jewish court is in is that they desire to have Jesus killed. Okay, They, wanna, they want Jesus to be put to death. 
But because they're under Roman rule, they're not allowed to enforce the death sentence themselves. Okay, like uh, the Mosaic you know, uh, legislation under the Old Covenant before Israel is subjugated and occupied by her enemies. They're actually under Roman rule. And so they're having to plot a way to have the Romans do their bidding, to have the Romans execute this death penalty. And this is a little bit of a problem because the Roman practice of the Roman magistrates was not to impose civil judgments on Jewish religious matters. Okay, you see an example of this later in the book of Acts where a Roman ruler tells the Jews this. This is Acts, this is Acts 18, 14. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have a reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge in these matters. And that was the typical Roman practice. And so what's being plotted, and you'll see more of this next week as we zone in on Jesus before Pilate, is the Jews, are they really want to kill Jesus for a blasphemy charge, but that's a religious charge. And so they're plotting and crafting how to present this to Rome in such a way that it's not just this private Jewish religious matter, okay, but there's actually a political threat attached to these charges to try to get Rome to do their bidding. And we'll see that play out more next week. Now, this sham trial was not the failure of some obscure group of Jews. These were the leaders of the nation. This was the Sanhedrin that was plotting to put Jesus to death. And one of the things that Solomon saw when he penned the book of Ecclesiastes and he was overwhelmed with the vanity of this life apart from God, life under the sun, one of the things that grieved him was when he saw great evil in human courtrooms. Places that are supposed to be places of justice actually turn out to be places of wickedness. He says this in Ecclesiastes 3. He says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Even there was wickedness. The whole purpose of human courts and human courtrooms is to judge righteously. And when a human court or a human courtroom judges unrighteously, the Bible says this is a great evil under the sun. A great evil. It's, it's something that should, that should cause us to mourn deeply and greatly that even in the place of justice, that there would be wickedness. And never was this truer than in this meeting with the Sanhedrin. There stood one in their midst who was the Holy One of Israel, the blameless one, the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they plotted against him how to put him to death. These are the wicked shepherds of Israel 
that Jeremiah prophesied about. All throughout his letters, he comes back to this theme of wicked shepherds, worthless shepherds, uh, selfish shepherds who care for themselves and not the sheep. These are the shepherds of Israel, these men. And their failures, they're apostate, they're wicked. Only in the new heavens and the new earth will perfect justice be established. And until then, we mourn evil in human courtrooms. And we ought to mourn that. And we ought to thank God for every judge and every judgment that's righteous in this world. This is a great evil under the sun. But never was it more evil than in this situation. At the end of this meeting of the Sanhedrin, Matthew tells us in verse 2 that Jesus is bound and delivered. Note those two verbs there. He's bound and delivered. Jesus had already prophesied this earlier in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 20, Jesus says this to his disciples. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, I want us to pause and just remember this morning that the fact that Jesus predicted that this was going to happen reminds us that Jesus voluntarily submitted to this treatment and to this judgment. They bound him because he let them bind him. They delivered him up because he let them deliver him up. He prophesied this to his disciples. Jesus was bound and delivered at this meeting. He was bound like Isaac was bound in the Old Testament, Genesis 22. He was bound like Isaac was bound by Abraham on top of Mount Moriah where Isaac became the willing sacrifice. Where he looks to his father and he says, I see the wood, but where's the lamb? And and Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. And Isaac is bound and the beloved son of promise became a willing sacrifice to God. Jesus is willingly bound in in this text. And Matthew tells us he he was delivered over. He was delivered over. That means from this point forward... Jesus is in Roman custody. He's delivered over to the Gentiles. He's delivered over like Joseph was delivered over in the Old Testament to the Gentiles by his treacherous brother. Jesus is delivered over to the Gentiles by the treacherous shepherds of Israel. Willingly. Now, in verse 3... We come to a scene change. This is like an interlude, okay? Because verse 2 picks up again with verse 11, Jesus before Pilate. But what happens in verse 3 is this scene change that again focuses in on Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. Now, several weeks back, we heard a whole sermon about Jesus's, uh, Judas's apostasy and betrayal of Jesus. Jesus, But we're going to come back to this theme uh, this morning. And this passage needs to be explained and understood very precisely. And so I want you to lean in this morning and listen up. Because this passage teaches us something about repentance. 
And repentance is really important. Because the way that you receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is you repent and believe. And so this is really, really important that we have a biblical understanding and a biblical definition of what repentance is and what repentance is not. Verse 3, we are told that Judas changes his mind. He changed his mind about his sin. Verse 3 also tells us that not only does he change his mind, it's not this intellectual only thing, he actually takes action in this passage to return the money that he received from the Sanhedrin, the blood money that is referred to in this text. And this is, this is called restitution in the word of God. He took something that was unlawful and he attempts to return that thing uh, to the chief priest. So verse 3, he changes his mind, he, he, he makes restitution, and then in verse 4, he confesses his sin. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now that confession actually does two things. It actually establishes Judas acknowledges that he has sinned. Yet at the same time, he proclaims and testifies that Jesus is what? innocent innocent and that's the thing you're going to see throughout these this trial is that the charges don't stick they cannot be established Jesus is innocent okay you're going to see that same thing when Jesus stands before Pilate now if anybody were able to dig up dirt on Jesus surely it would be one of the 12 who lived in the closest proximity to Jesus for over a three-year period. But he says this in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So he changes his mind, he offers restitution, and then in verse 4 he confesses his sin. So the question we need to work through as we study this passage together, is did Judas repent? Did Judas repent? And to make that question a little sharper, I want to refer you this morning to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, popularly referred to as the 1689 Confession of what it says about repentance. Whole chapter of repentance, chapter 15. And I'm going to read a quote to you. Quote, There is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent. So I want you to consider that this morning. Is that true? That there's no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent. And so our question this morning is, did Judas repent? And if he did, why was he condemned? Did Judas repent? And if he did, why was he condemned? Now, one of the greatest benefits of learning systematic theology is learning how to systematize the Bible, okay? And by systematize the Bible, I don't mean come up with this external system that you impose upon the Bible. 
I mean that you study the Bible on its own terms to discover how it fits together. Okay? One of the greatest benefits of learning systematic theology is learning how to make proper biblical distinctions. This thing is not like this thing. They're different. Okay? An example would be that the Bible makes a distinction between saving faith and its counterfeit form. Okay? Non-saving faith. Saving faith and its counterfeit form. Yet at times, the Bible uses the very same word to describe both. Faith, saving faith, real faith, truth faith, and its counterfeit form. Maybe the most famous example of this is in James chapter 2. James tells us, uh, even the demons believe. That's just the word for, a verb for faith. That's what it is. And, and James tells us, there's a kind of faith okay, that even the demons have. And they shudder before God, is what James says. Okay? And then, obviously, James's point is to say, but that kind of faith is not the same as Christian faith, true faith, and saving faith. Even if the same word is used, a distinction must be made. In the same way, we must distinguish between saving repentance and its counterfeit form. The Bible talks about repentance unto salvation or repentance unto life. It tells us that there's joy in heaven when one sinner repents of their sin. Those are references to the real thing, to saving, spirit-wrought, grace in the human soul, repentance, the real thing. And this room is filled with people who have done that. You've turned from sin and you've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's repentance. But there's a counterfeit form that we must be aware of. And the best place to see this in the Bible is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul makes a distinction between two different ways that, that sinners mourn their sin. He calls it godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So the Bible teaches, and we need to understand this, that even the wicked can grieve their sin. Even the wicked can be sorrowful over their sin. And, and, and Judas's end in this text shows us that even the wicked can confess their sin and maybe even most surprising, even offer restitution for their sin and yet not experience or display real repentance. But only the counterfeit form. Only the counterfeit form. Two, two types of grief, sorrow, and repentance. Worldly, that leads to death. And godly, that leads to salvation. If verse 1 and 2 instruct us about the counsel of the wicked, and that's a phrase that comes right out of Psalm 2, 
That's what they're doing. And when that, that Sanhedrin is meeting, is they're plotting against the Lord and against His anointed. They're filled with rage at God and His Christ. It's a, it's a playing out of Psalm 2. So verse 1 and 2 are the counsel of the wicked. Verses 3 through 5 are an example of the repentance of the wicked. There is a type of repentance that's not the real thing. You know, sometimes I think we can oversimplify things to the point to where we actually distort biblical truth. And that's a problem. And maybe an example of this would be an oversimplification is, you know, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who care about their sin and those who don't care about their sin. Or those who grieve their sin and those who don't grieve their sin. You see how those, those rigid categories, you can't account for this. What about this other thing? What about the wicked who grieve their sin but not in a godly way? This portrait of Judas shows us that an unsaved man can be in absolute turmoil of soul over his sin. Yet what he is experiencing in this text is nothing more than worldly sorrow that leads to death. He realized that Jesus was condemned and he realized that he could not do anything to change what he had set in motion. And this text tells us that he began to be tormented in conscience. And this is the, this is the nature of sin. It has pleasure, but the Bible calls it deceitful pleasures or fleeting pleasures. It's fun for a minute, fun for a little while, but then there comes a moment where that serpent bites you. That, that thing that you once loved, it stings you, and it's not fun anymore. And this is, this is what Judas is experiencing. The sin that was sweet in his mouth became bitter in his belly. The money that he coveted now became disgusting to him. He, he betrayed the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and, and now he couldn't get rid of it fast enough to get, get it away from me. He throws it into the temple. What once brought him pleasure now bit him like a serpent, and he became miserable in this world. He became miserable in this world. He felt the burden of total despair. And the Bible says that this burden of total despair is too heavy for any of us to carry. Listen to how it's described in Proverbs 18 verse 14. It says this, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear it? And that's what he's experiencing in this passage. Total despair over his sin. What do we learn here? We learn on the basic level that sorrow over sin does not necessarily mean that someone is saved. Sometimes you hear it said, man, one of the surest marks of salvation is grief over sin. And there's a measure of truth that that is, that is necessary, that is needed. But, but please note, he had that. And yet he's not saved. Sorrow over sin is not necessarily not, does not necessarily mean that someone is saved. And even an act of restitution 
doesn't necessarily mean that someone is truly repentant. Now, as you stare at this passage, one thing to just ask is what what did he not do? I mean, what, what is the missing ingredient here? He changed his mind, he confessed his sin, and he offered restitution. And those are all needed and necessary things. They're just insufficient in and of themselves. The one thing missing in Judas's response is the main thing. Okay, Notice that there is nothing vertical in this passage of a man dealing with God for his sin. Everything in this passage is horizontal, that he is dealing manward uh, uh, with his sin. He's dealing with the priest. He's returning the money. He's confessing his sin to the priest. Now, some of the older Protestants on the backside of the Protestant Reformation made a big point out of this. That Judas, you know, Judas was under conviction. He went and confessed his sin to a priest instead of confessing his sin to God. And these men would use that point to draw connections to the false Roman system of penance. That, that you go to Christ to confess your sin. You don't go to a priest to confess your sin. Note that. That everything here is manward and horizontal. Not Godward and vertical. And just by way of contrast, think of how differently this is than that portrait of true repentance that we have in Psalm 51 where David, King David, was brought to a place of repentance over his sin. Just note how different. I'll read the first four verses here. Note how vertical this is. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Wash me, O God. Cleanse me, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Against you, you alone have I sinned, O God. Everything is vertical there. It's a man dealing with God the judge. Judas was dealing on a horizontal level. He was dealing with man, but not with God. His deepest need in this moment was not to have the priest accept the money back, but to have God the judge wipe his record completely clean. So we have an illustration here about ultimate needs and lesser needs. And he leaves the ultimate need completely untouched. He needs to be made right with God. He needs to be forgiven by God. And yet he only deals in this horizontal level. Judas is in total despair because he has no faith in the mercy of God. It's verse 5, sorry, verse 4 where he confesses his sin to the priest 
and they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Go deal with that problem yourself. And you know what? That's exactly what Judas did. He handled it himself. He tried to handle his guilt himself. His fate, verse 4, is that verse 5 is that he went out and he hanged himself. He died by suicide. Instead of taking his guilt vertically to God, he deals with it himself. Now, interestingly, his fate, death by hanging himself, was the same as a famous traitor in the Old Testament. There was a counselor who betrayed King David. His name was Ahithophel. And he, and he was part of leading the rebellion against King David. And when, he, when his council was overthrown, the Bible says that he went and he hanged himself. And here we have Judas in the exact same circumstance, not only betraying King David, but betraying David's true and better son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he suffers the exact same fate there's not a clearer picture in all the bible if you're wondering man what is what is second corinthians seven ten? what does it look like worldly sorrow leads to death that's exactly what happens in this passage he's sorry he's grieving and it leads him that worldly sorrow leads him straight to death Judas took the blood money that was dripping with the blood of Jesus himself, the blood of the Lamb. And yet, consider this, even to his last breath that he took, the blood of Jesus was able to cover his sin. Do you believe that confession that we read together this morning, that there's no sin so great... There's no sin so great. How is, how is that worded in, in, in the... There's no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent. Do you think that was true for Judas? You think the blood of Jesus was able to cover even his sin? He had warrant to come to Christ. Have you ever thought about that? How do we know that? Because Jesus said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He could have done that. He had warrant to do it. Jesus told him to do it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He had warrant to believe the gospel. But no appeal is made in this story to the grace of God. He believed the biggest lie the devil can ever tell that his sin was beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. Judas apprehended his sin. He saw it rightly that I've sinned. He saw it as wicked, but he failed to apprehend God's mercy. He repented in a worldly sense, not in a real sense, not in a saving sense. What can we learn about true repentance from this story? Number one, true repentance is evangelical. That means that it's gospel repentance. 
That means that if there is no gospel, there is no true repentance. Gospel is necessary for repentance. If you don't have the gospel, you don't have repentance. True repentance is this, always turning from sin, simultaneously turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just turning from sin, clean your life up, deal with it yourself. It's turning from sin and to the Lord Jesus Christ. If all you try to do is stop sinning or cover over your sin or deal with your sin yourself, it's lipstick on a pig. That's all it is. Makeup on a corpse. It's like hanging fruit on a dead tree. That's all it is. It's like rearranging the furniture on the deck of the Titanic while it's sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Your sin should remind you that you need something that you cannot do for yourself. Which is why David cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Something needs to happen to you, sinner, that you cannot do for yourself. And the awareness of that need should cause you to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. True repentance is evangelical. And true repentance is always a believing repentance. No faith, no repentance. And, and we've said this for a long time. You know, you think about repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin called conversion. If there's no repentance, there's no real faith. And if there's no faith, there's no real repentance. There's simultaneous responses of receiving the gospel. True repentance is always a believing repentance that flings itself upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now from Judas's end, I want to mention several points of application. What can we learn from the last moments of Judas's life? Number one, we'll start here. And this might sound obscure, but I trust you'll understand uh, uh, where we're going. Number one, we can learn about the dangers of hard preaching. Okay? Say, what in the world do you mean? Right? Sometimes you'll hear people say this, especially those who come to Christ on the internet. You know, they, they hear the gospel on YouTube or they're discipled by an internet, you know, pastor or some internet, you know, uh, uh, Christian celebrity makes this huge mark in their life and they love hard preaching. Okay? And, and by hard preaching, I mean just, just slobber slinging, uh, hard preaching right there. That's hard preaching. Okay? Hard preaching is designed to bring people to a state, think about it, similar to what Judas experienced in this passage. It's what it's designed to do, okay? Is to bring sinners to, proud, arrogant, boastful sinners to a state that they confess their sin. They're troubled over their sin. They're grieved over their sin. Now that's not a bad thing. 
to be grieved over your sin, to confess that you're a sinner, and even to make restitution for your sin. That's not a bad thing. In fact, in Acts 2, we see that when Peter preaches the gospel after the Spirit is poured out in Acts 2, the response of that crowd, we're told, is that they were cut to the heart. In other words, nobody heard that sermon and said, man, you know, that's great, what's for lunch? No, sir. The Holy Spirit took out the sword and stuck men and women in the heart. They were pierced with those words. They felt those words. They were cut to the heart and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? Hard preaching is designed to bring people to a state of an awareness of their sin. But, but note this. Hard preaching is not gospel preaching if you don't call sinners to turn to Christ and be saved. Hard preaching is not preaching the gospel unless you fling the doors of the kingdom open and say, come to Jesus Christ. You feel that guilt? You're aware of that guilt? The Lord Jesus Christ died for sin. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be warned about making a proper distinction between preaching the law and preaching the gospel. Both are preaching the Bible. Both are necessary. Preaching the law of God is necessary, but it cannot save you. It cannot save you. It can bring you to a place where you are aware of your need to be saved, but only the gospel of Jesus Christ saves. And so, make sure your definition of, man, that's good preaching right there, that your definition of good preaching includes gospel preaching. Okay? Make sure your definition of good preaching includes gospel preaching. On a more personal note, make sure your own gospel preaching actually includes preaching the gospel. The good news of great joy to all peoples. Preach the law, but don't forget to preach the gospel. Or else, or else, all you will accomplish is bringing sinners to a place of despair just like Judas. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two. From his end, we can learn the insufficiency of modern remedies for sin. Now, I want you to imagine this with me. Think of how severe, you know, Judas' Judas's turmoil is described in this passage. Now, I want you to imagine with me that Judas were to put the state of his soul in this particular moment on Twitter or Instagram in our modern world. Okay? I want you to imagine that for just a moment. How would our modern world have counseled Judas in his moment of despair? How would our modern world have counseled Judas in his moment of despair? Almost certainly, someone would put forth the Oprah Winfrey gospel. You say, what do you mean? Judas, what you really need is you need to learn how to forgive yourself. 
You need to get over this. You, you need to move past this. You need to learn how to just get over yourself. You need to do a little self-care here, Judas. Okay? Friends, that's not what Judas needed, and that wasn't Judas's problem. And I do want you to know this, that the Bible never says anything ever even close to you needing to forgive yourself. It, it, it actually is the exact opposite. You don't get to forgive yourself. Why? Because you're the criminal, not the judge. Judge does the forgiving. You're the one that needs that forgiveness. God is judge. God needs to forgive your sin. The Lord Jesus died to propitiate the wrath of God, not your memory. God was atoned through the death of Christ, not your memory. Your, your need to forgive yourself. No doubt someone else chiming in on Twitter said, Judas, you sound a little disturbed. You need to go sit down with a specialist who deals with PTSD and anxiety. I mean, you're at the end of your rope, man. You need to get some counseling. And what I want us to remember is that's not what Judas needed. That's what he would have been offered almost certainly in, the, in our modern world. But that's not what he needed. Judas did not need therapy. He was at the end of his rope. Don't get me wrong. He was suicidal. Don't get me wrong. But that's not what he needed. And then finally, someone else chimes in with the prescription medication gospel that says, Judas, man, you're not thinking straight. Take this and call me in the morning. Okay, Take this and call me in the morning. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, you know, and, and uh, what, what I am saying is I want you to be aware that you live in a world with modern answers for sin and guilt. You need to know that. It's all around you, and they're insufficient. And I want to win you to that, that they're so insufficient. Judas would have heard that, but it wouldn't have helped him. It's not what he needed. Every other remedy that would have been proposed to him would have been a superficial cure. What Judas needed was the gospel. That was his only hope. That's what he needed. An appeal to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the only place he could take his guilt. That's the only remedy for him in all the world. It's the only answer. And so, I, brothers and sisters, I don't want us to lose sight of what sinners ultimately need. There are lesser needs all along the way. But the ultimate need never changes. We need to be saved from our sins. And the only remedy is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so don't forget to hold out the words of life in this world with all these modern remedies for sin and guilt, hold forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three. From his end, we can learn the deceptive nature of suicide. Suicide lies to us. The temptations to suicide are deceptive, deceitful temptations. 
lies to us in at least two ways. Number one, it lies to us about the judgment to come. Listen to this quote by Blaise Pascal. He says this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Now that's a a different thing than what we would normally think. That people that give in to the temptation to end their life do it because they're unhappy, and, and, and no doubt that's true. But if you press deeper, they do it because they believe it will be better for them if they do it. You understand? If they, if they didn't believe that, if they thought it would be worse for them, they wouldn't do it. They, they feel like this is the escape. This will be better for me to do it this way than to do it this, this other way, to face life in this world. Judas thought that it was better for him to end his life. If, it, if he thought it would be worse for him to end his life, he wouldn't have done it. But this was deceitful. This was a lie. It wasn't better for him. He believed it would be, but it wasn't. Judas was deceived. And listen, Judas is in hell. It wasn't better for him. It wasn't better for him to end his earthly life and then to face God in judgment. The Almighty in wrath upon his judgment seat. He believed it would be better, but it wasn't better for him at all. One of the things to learn here is a sober biblical view of the judgment to come will expose the deceitful lies of suicide. We need to know and believe what the Bible says about the judgment to come. We need to know it and believe it. Second way suicide lies to us is about the power of the cross. Not only lies to us about the judgment to come, but also about the power of the cross. And it sounds like this. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, but not me. I'm too far gone. That's for other people out there. Not me. I'm too far gone. Jesus died for sin, but not my kind of sin. That's too much. A glimpse of the glorious gospel will expose the lies of suicide. Good news, great joy, all people. Good news of great joy for all people. Matthew Henry was right when he said this. We should think of our sin as bad as we possibly can, provided that we don't think it unpardonable. Don't ever cross that line, Matthew Henry says. Think it as bad as you possibly could think it, as egregious as you could possibly think it. But you cross a line when you think it too much for the mercy of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Number four, we learn from Judas's end that sinners should always come to Christ. Always. When sinners are made aware of their sin, the right response, the biblical response, and the wise response is to flee to Christ. 
And here's the danger. Why would you wait? Why would you wait? If you are made aware of your guilt and your condemnation and your sin, why would you sit in that guilt for another moment? For another moment. And we have all kind of ways of justifying that. But, but if I just sit in my guilt and feel a little bit sorrier and worse about what I've done, maybe I'll be a little more deserving of that forgiveness. It seems just, just so cheap and so scandalous that my sinful record would be wiped completely clean. And that's backwards. We learn from Judas' life and death that sinners should always come to Christ. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All kind of dangers in the human soul of, I'll do that later. I'll wait till later. Sometimes you hear this in children and even Christian, you know, Christian families that bring their kids up here in the gospel. You'll hear you know, somebody say, I, when, when I'm older... You know, I'll, I'll believe when I'm older. I'll follow when I'm older. I'll come to Christ when I'm older. It's deceitful. We learn that sinners should always come to Christ. The Bible actually tells us the appropriate time to come to Jesus Christ. And the way the Bible says it is this. Today is the day of salvation. Think of how good that, that good news is. That you, you know you're a sinner. You're awakened to your record and your state. Why would you sit in that any longer? The Bible says, come to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Finally, in verses 6 through 8, we see the hypocrisy of the priest. And you see this in this ridiculous you know, uh, response of the priest in verse 6. They say, it's not, uh, Judas brings the money back. And they say, it's not lawful for us to put that in the treasury. It's not lawful. That's a reference to the law of Moses, the law of God, the written word of God. That's a breach of the written word of God if we put that money in the treasury. And this is the hypocrisy. Too scrupled to put the money in the treasury, but not too scrupled to give the money in the first place. To give the money in the first place, you're the ones who gave the blood money in the first place. And not too scrupled to buy a field with it, even if it doesn't go in the treasury. And again, this is an example of what Jesus has indicted these men for. Straining a gnat, swallowing a camel. Religious hypocrisy. The purchase of the field is called the potter's field or the field of blood. And this transaction is said to have fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. And we'll close here that this, this fulfillment, verse 9, this was fulfilled. That phrase assures us that even this, on the very last morning of Jesus' earthly life, prior to his crucifixion, and resurrection, even this injustice, even this hypocrisy, and this wicked courtroom that ultimately leads to his death, 
even this and all of this takes place according to the plan of God and according to the word of God. Announced hundreds of years in the Old Testament before it happened. And that reference to the 30 pieces of silver reminds us that it was God's plan that the Prince of Glory would come and be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It's the price of a slave in the Old Testament. It was God's plan that the king would come and be counted as a lowly slave. And Jesus did that for us and for our salvation. That he came from the high and holy place. And he stooped and humiliated himself. And became a servant and even a slave for us and for our salvation. Jesus told us this. He said, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, God, that you would use it in our lives and in this church to do us good, to to teach us, to instruct us, Lord. We pray that you would Build us up. God, we pray that our understanding would be sanctified. That our affections would be sanctified. And Lord, we pray today that you would strengthen our love and our faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.